You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Reports on a 2020 Chinese penetration of Japan's defense networks. Move it connected supply chain issues aren't over. Akamai looks at the current state of ransomware. Malox ransomware continues its evolution. Machine identities and shadow access. Ukrainian hacktivist auxiliaries hit Russian websites. Joe Kerrigan unpacks statistics released by CISA. Our guest is Jeffrey Wheatman from Black Kite discussing the market shift from SRS to cyber risk intelligence. And radiation sensor reports from Chernobyl may have been manipulated. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. Washington Post reports on the basis of recently obtained information from U.S. and Japanese sources that in the fall of 2020, the U.S. NSA discovered a major Chinese penetration of classified Japanese defense networks. According to the Post, the hackers had deep persistent access and appeared to be after anything they could get their hands on, plans, capabilities, assessments of military shortcomings, according to three former senior U.S. officials, who were among a dozen current and former U.S. and Japanese officials interviewed, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the matter's sensitivity. Reuters says that Japan was unable or unwilling to confirm whether information had been compromised. The incident complicated U.S.-Japanese defense cooperation, especially intelligence sharing, which has grown closer as China adopts an increasingly assertive policy in East Asia. Russia's war against Ukraine has repeatedly shown the value of intelligence sharing among friendly intelligence services. Anything that causes suspicion of whether that sharing can be done safely and securely is a win for the adversary. Reuters puts the tally of organizations breached in ways traceable to the MoveIt vulnerability exploitation at 600 and counting, and cites experts who say that many more breaches, possibly thousands more, are likely in the future. The Klopp gang began exploiting Progress Software's MoveIt on May 27th. 
Progress realized something was amiss and began investigating on May 28th. On May 30th, it had learned enough to issue a warning, and on May 31st, Progress made a patch available. The continued exploitation illustrates the complexity and interdependence of software supply chains and of the difficulty of getting users to patch promptly and effectively. Akamai has published a report looking at the ransomware landscape in 2023. The researchers found that the rampant abuse of zero-day and one-day vulnerabilities in the past six months led to a 143% increase in victims when comparing the first quarter of 2022 with the first quarter of 2023. Akamai also notes that ransomware groups now increasingly target the exfiltration of files, which has become the primary source of extortion, as seen with the recent exploitation of Go Anywhere and Move It. This underscores the fact that file backup solutions, though effective against file encryption, are no longer a sufficient strategy. If the crooks threaten you with doxing, they're not going to care whether your files are backed up or not. The more copies, the merrier. So, think of backups as necessary, but not sufficient. Trend Micro warns that the target company ransomware, also known as Malox, is using the fully undetectable obfuscator engine Batcloak. The threat actors use vulnerable SQL servers to deliver the Remcos rat, which is then used to deploy target company. Trend Micro says, Since the initial efforts were terminated and blocked by the existing solutions, the attackers opted to use the FUD-wrapped version of their binaries. The FUD packer used by Remcos and the one used by the target company ransomware has a style of packaging that closely resembles the style used by Batcloak. Using a batch file as an outer layer and afterward, decoding and loading using PowerShell to make a LOL bin's execution. Target company, it should be unnecessary to say, but of course it's not, has no connection with the Minneapolis-based retail giant. It's just the name of a malware strain, and the alternative name, Malox, has no connection to either malls or big draft animals. It's just the name they gave it. In any case, keep an eye out for incursions. Stack Identity has published a report looking at identity and access management trends, finding that shadow access, the invisible and unmonitored identity and access, increases the risk of breaches, malware, ransomware, and data theft that current IAM tools are not built to mitigate. The proliferation of shadow access is caused by two factors. First, visibility to who's accessing your data and who has access to data is scattered across cloud IAM, cloud IDP, infrastructure as code, data stores, and HR systems. Second, visibility to who's authorized to access your data is scattered across ticketing systems, emails, spreadsheets, and screenshots. As an aside, the report also found that only 4% of identities in enterprise cloud environments are human, while the rest are non-human identities. Shadow access is commonly a legacy problem involving over-permissioned accounts that are permitted to persist on a network, overlooked and unattended. Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty reports that a Ukrainian hacktivist group calling itself Pseudo-RMRF claimed in its Telegram channel to have compromised the site of Moskor BTI, Moscow's Property Registration Bureau. Pseudo-RMRF has been heard from before, 
surfacing in reports of a cyber attack against the Skolkova Foundation in 2022. The group said that its goal was collection, specifically information about state officials, politicians, military, and special services officers who support the Ukraine war. That information, pseudo-RMRF said, had been handed to Ukraine's defense forces. They also claimed to have destroyed data and infrastructure. Their claims were made not only in Telegram, but on the Moscow BTI website, pseudo-RMRF defaced. Some reports called the compromise site an engineering service website, probably because the data Moscow BTI holds includes building plans and technical diagrams. UAC-0154, a threat group whose provenance and allegiance is unclear, has used the open-source tool Merlin Agent as the fishhook in a campaign against Ukrainian government sites, the record reports. Merlin Agent is a post-exploit command and control tool, that is, a remote-access Trojan, intended for use in legitimate research and testing, but like many such products, it's a dual-use item. CERT-UA, Ukraine's Cyber Defense Authority, says that the typical fish bait in the current campaign has been a document named Internal CyberThreat.CHM. The sender misrepresents itself as acting on behalf of CERT-UA. The campaign seems to be cyber espionage, but attribution is unclear. Merlin Agent is widely available, and the threat actor, UAC-0154, hasn't been clearly associated with any government. And finally, there's a suggestive and disturbing report due at Black Hat later this week, citing research by Ruben Santamarta, scheduled to be presented in full at Black Hat this Thursday, wired reports that radiation sensor data from the Chernobyl exclusion area may have been manipulated during the Russian Army's brief occupation of Chernobyl during February and March of 2022. The sensors showed troubling but inexplicable spikes in radiation levels. Those reports appear to have been bogus, the data possibly manipulated by a cyber attack. The published abstract of Santa Marta's talk says, Evidence confirms that the radiation levels depicted by a very specific set of real-time radiation maps, which during those days were consulted by millions of people, and also consumed as a single source of information by media outlets and official entities, did not correspond to the actual physical conditions of the Chernobyl exclusion zone. If the data was indeed manipulated in a cyber attack, that's troubling. Corruption of sensor data in industrial systems would represent a major safety issue for many sectors and for the public at large. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan unpacks statistics recently released by CISA. Our guest is Jeffrey Wheatman from Black Kite, discussing the market shift from SRS to cyber risk intelligence. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Jeffrey Wheatman. He's a former Gartner analyst and now cyber evangelist at Black Kite, focusing on the business impact of third-party risk and solutions to treat those risks. This is part of our Industry Voices series of sponsored content. Our conversation centers on the market shift from SRS to cyber risk intelligence. Here's Jeffrey Wheatman. So SRS, Security Rating Services, came out a number of years ago. And what they do is we, we collect data from the outside and we can assess the security posture of an organization and that gets fed into, into third-party risk. The problem is, historically, it's been very much, okay, here's your score. You have a 400 or you have a C. What we have seen, though, is that does not drive better decision-making. You need more than a score in order to actually manage risk, assess risk, prioritize, et cetera. So what we have done is we've actually created a mechanism where we can provide financial context. So you're a C, but you have regulated data or you're critical to our production, whether digital or physical, and therefore you can reprioritize. Uh, we also have mechanisms for assessing where the exposures are in our third-party ecosystem for ransomware. Uh, we've seen a lot of recent issues with particular software packages. SolarWinds is the real big one from a number of years ago. And the most recent one is MoveIt, right? Mm. MoveIt is a very simple, well, maybe not simple, but a basic mechanism for moving data securely from one place to another. Well, tons of companies are using it and don't realize it. So being able to identify where in that ecosystem those things sit, help you understand where your exposures are, where you should be looking, where you should be paying attention. So the market is evolving and we're leading the charge on that to move from just having a score, a number or a letter to providing intelligence so that sourcing people, vendor management people, business people can make better and more informed and critically defensible decisions about what risks they want to treat versus which ones they want to accept. 
So, I mean, I think that really brings us to third-party risk management. And why is that such a priority these days? It seems to me more than ever. I always ask people a very simple question. If your biggest partner gets hit with ransomware and they're down for a week, how long are you down for? And the answer is typically longer than a week because everybody's doing uh, just in time. And then I think also to layer on top of that, we're seeing a lot of legal and regulatory requirements around managing digital third parties, digital ecosystem, particularly within financial services. Uh, The latest one is DORA out of the EU, which has a whole section on third-party risk. And they're telling you, you need to monitor those risks. You are responsible for what's going on there. So we're starting to see that. And then the other thing, I always say cybersecurity is only a part of managing your supply chain, but it often has an outsized impact. Because if a company you manufactures widgets for you and they get hit with ransomware, they probably can't send you the widgets. They probably can't pay their bills. They probably can't send invoices out. They can't pay their staff. And it just, it becomes this sort of cascading failure. And if you don't at least have visibility and intelligence into your third party ecosystem, it becomes virtually impossible to report to your board, report to your senior executives about what risks you have. What are your recommendations then for, for organizations who want to explore this, who are, who are looking to you know, delve into this notion of cyber risk intelligence? What's, what's a great way to begin? So the first thing, and I know a lot of technology people are going to not be comfortable with this, you have to go talk to your business stakeholders internally and understand who are they doing business with? Who are they sharing data with? Who are they relying on in order to achieve their goals and objectives. Then we need to look at how to prioritize those. Not all of those partners are of the same value. Not all of them are of the same criticality. And then we need to start assessing what the risk exposures are, understanding what they're doing from a cybersecurity perspective. Historically, you sent out questionnaires. And even assuming the questionnaires were accurate day one, which is open for discussion, over time, 90 days, they're less valuable, 183, you know, a year out, three years out. And we know from talking to people, uh, some people are reassessing their partners every three years, which is beyond risky. So being able to understand where your exposures are, looking at single points of failure, being able to have ongoing discussion with your third parties so that you can help them understand, look, you know, from the outside in, here's what the attackers are seeing. Here's what the hackers are seeing. You need to take a look at this because you're exposed. You're very susceptible to ransomware. And we know that because we've done research. Companies that are getting victimized by ransomware are not doing some basic blocking and tackling. And we can see that from the outside. And that's where that intelligence comes in. And then finally, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of years coaching CISOs and CROs and, and their, their ilk, and they tend to struggle communicating with business stakeholders. And I think the main reason for that is they're not talking about the financial element. So being able to bring in cyber risk quantification and being able to assess the financial impact of a breach or a ransomware or a data loss in your partner ecosystem and, and, you know, you can have great conversations there. If, if you go to your executives and say, well, we think something real bad might happen, they're not going to give you any money and they're not going to solve the problem. But if you say, look, this partner exposes us to $10 million worth of risk over the year, then they're going to perk their heads up and they're going to start paying a lot of, of attention. And then I think finally building this, this 
continuous improvement loop is really, really important. It's not just a point in time snapshot. It's reassessing and reevaluating over time and being able to reprioritize. Business models change, architectures change, businesses change. You need to be able to change the way you assess and report on risk. And ultimately, you want to be able to go to the CEO and the board and say, look, here's the overall financial exposure within our digital ecosystem. And right now, most organizations are unable to do that. And if all you're doing is bringing one score, one letter, one number without that financial context, without a compliance context, it just doesn't give you defensible decision making. That's Jeffrey Wheatman from Black Kite. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, Some interesting uh, stats came out of uh, CISA recently. And uh, actually, the folks over at Duo did a little analysis of it that caught my eye here. And uh, I'm curious, uh, what are some of the things here from CISA that uh, you think are worth sharing here? I think uh, there's a lot in this report that's very interesting. Number one, more than 50% of successful intrusions at organizations began with a valid account for initial access. Okay. What that means is there was some account that was open. This could be uh, an old employee's account or an admin account with default passwords. Uh, That's how they classified in here. But I would say that anything that even a user account, if you, you know, a current user or current employee account would be a valid account, an account that has a reason to exist. Mm. And was how they gained initial access. These attacks are initiated, are actually begun long before they actually set foot into the into the system, into the environment. Mm-hmm. And usually, the first kinetic action is to send an email in to fish some credentials or try to do something. But once they're actually going to get access, more than fifty percent of the time, they're using a valid account, hmm. which speaks to how effective phishing and spear phishing are. Right. Which is the next point, it's kind of down at the bottom of this uh, article, but spear phishing has a 33% success rate. That is one in three spear phishing emails is successful. Hmm. And that only 13% of spear phishing attempts are blocked. I would assume that means by some automated means. Right. And that makes sense to me that, that spear phishing attempts don't get blocked because generally when you're going to do a spear phishing attack, you sit down and you think about what you're going to write. And you actually write something good, or maybe nowadays you use ChatGPT to write a nice phishing email. Uh, (laughs) Or uh, WormGPT as it is now, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, You can actually go out and use that. But the spear phishing attack is always going to be more successful than just a standard phishing attack or even a spam, uh, you know, spam phishing attack. Sure. Because first off, it's only going to one person. It's specifically crafted for that person. Right. So 87% of the time is just going to pass right through a spam filter or a phishing filter or some kind of security product that's intended to block it. That's not going to happen because it doesn't match any signatures out there. It's a new creation and it's tailored to do what it's going to do. When the person sees it in cybersecurity terms, they're very likely to click on the, to click on the link or take the action that they're, that they're told to take. Right. I say very likely uh, with 33%, because normally a, a successful phishing email is maybe like a 1% success rate. Yeah. A spam phishing attempt, like the Nigerian print scam, 
that might have well under a tenth of a percent success rate. Yeah. But a spear phishing attack, remarkably effective. Mm-hmm. CISA also observed that 78% of links and attachments are blocked, which prevents the execution of any malicious activity, which is, is good. Sounds like the majority of things are getting, getting blocked, but that means about one in five is getting through. Right. Which is not really a good record for, uh, for a security product or for security products or for a security posture at an organization. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I would say, I guess one way to look at this is that that's one line of defense. Correct. Right. So if, you know, four out of five things are getting handled by your automation, that means the remaining one out of five, in this case, seems to me like this is where your security awareness training comes in and yep. things like that, or perhaps a secondary system. We always talk about defense in depth. Yes. This seems to me like this, that's the successful organizations are going to have those kinds of things in place. Yeah, they are going to have those kind of things in place because you're 100% correct. If there is this, this concept of the cyber kill chain, Mm. that's, uh, was it MITRE that put that out? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you know, there's, there's, there's some parts of it you don't have any control over, right? Right. And like I say, the very early part of uh, a cyber attack is going to be reconnaissance. And that is pretty much out of your control as an organization. There's nothing you can do uh, to stop people from just gathering open source intelligence and calling in and, and probing and finding things. Yeah. That, that's, kind of, that's hard to prevent against. But once the rest of the uh, attack is going on. Yeah. They're going to have to do a phishing attack that might get stopped. That email might get stopped. Then they're going to have to get convince a user. There's another opportunity to stop it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the user is tricked into going out somewhere, then that's another opportunity to stop it. Uh, You could have multi-factor authentication that would, that pretty much shuts down account takeover. If you use like something like FIDO2 or just makes it more difficult. So it has to be uh, personally involved. That's, there's all kinds of opportunity to stop it. And you're right. Defense in depth is the way to go. Yeah. Because along that kill chain, the attacker has, has the disadvantage. They have to be right every single time. You only have to be right once. <laughs> Which is, that's an inversion of what we usually right. hear, how, how it's usually described, right? Yeah, but the, the, <laughs> the flip side of that is they can do that all day long. Right. And, right. and as long as they're doing that, you have to do it. Yeah. So you have to stop them somewhere along that line every single time they try. They only have to get through the entire process once. Yeah. All right. uh, Interesting statistics here. I I think uh, some of these were a little surprising to me. Uh, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.